0: Welcome to episode 4 of Two Brown Girls. I can't believe we're already more than halfway through this series. Today, we'll be talking about something that may be upsetting for some listeners. So we just want to put a content warning at the start. This episode is about the public conversation around sexual assault and harassment. This topic may detail some upsetting experiences, and we would just like to remind our listeners that if you have been through something traumatic, there is help out there. Please do reach out for support. For our listeners that are in Australia, one possible phone line is 1-800-RESPECT. This episode, we'll be sharing our opinions on some recent sexual assault cases in the public eye, political and legal protections and failings, and the lack of representation of women of colour in public discourse. So first, let's get right into it. Divya, how common of an issue is this?
1: So I actually think that we possibly don't know the full extent of how common sexual assault and harassment is. Um, all we do know is that more of these incidences happen than is reported because not everyone reports. So one of the stats which I looked at in 2016, the Australian Bureau of Statistics reported that almost 2 million Australian adults had experienced at least one sexual assault since the age of 15. Also, just with this ABS survey, it it is worth knowing that this was a voluntary survey and it did not capture the entire population of Australia. So the real number is definitely more than this. Also, it asked how many people had experienced sexual assault, not how many sexual assaults occurred. One person could have gone through this multiple times. I think another really important thing which sort of stood out to me is mm-hmm. that anyone can be a, a victim, a woman, man, non-binary person, like a child, an adult, literally anyone. And I think there is stigma, heavier for some than others, around reporting sexual assaults. So these types of barriers we encounter in seeking support are different, but the experience is sadly similar. It's important to say this, but again, according to the 2016 uh, ABS survey 97% of the offenders or perpetrators of these crimes were male. So one thing which I really, you know, personally believe in is that sexual assault is not a woman's problem. It's not a minority's problem. It can't be pinned on the victim. Sexual assault is a male problem and it's an act of violence predominantly by men. So, yeah, the ABS survey also it only asked for people who had experienced sexual assaults since the age of 15. So it didn't even take into account child sexual assault um, or harassment that takes mm. pl- place before someone turns 15. Um, so, Thanvi, I just wanted to ask you before, you know, we dig deeper into this, and you definitely don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but mm. what was the age that you first realized that you were getting noticed by men differently?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think when I noticed that I first was experiencing different kind of looks, looks that I weren't wasn't used to growing up um by men. I I think I was actually around the age of 15, but when I real I learned about how rampant of an issue this was at a younger age. I think around 12 I started kind of learning more and I think that was I mean we can get into this a bit later, but um the Delhi rape um case from 2012 mm-hmm. that was you know all over the media and I as a twelve year old you know heard about this and was disturbed and disgusted and I felt like that case encompassed so many issues of the the, the conversation around sexual assault of you know victim blaming mm-hmm. um you know it's just so much victim blaming and then also just like yeah. the legal aspects of it you know how how someone can just be slandered um, for mm. a decision that that is purely, you know, on the onus of the perpetuator, but we're blaming, oh, well, mm. maybe the woman shouldn't have done this. Maybe she shouldn't have done that. And yeah, I, it just made me recognize, like, it's not even a matter of, like, w- doing what is right or wrong as a woman. It's not about what we Definitely. did, you know? It's about Definitely. the perpetuator who committed the crime. So it's such a... I think that was um, the moment that I, like, realised that it was, like, a problem. And I I, I don't know, it was a really shitty wake-up call to the kind of status of the world. Um, Yeah. Yeah. What about you? When did you kind of start learning about this?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned the 2012 um, Nirbhaya case in Delhi. Um, That was one of the things that sort of worked me up to this as well. But I... Definitely started noticing um, a difference in the way I was treated when I was possibly at the age of like ten or eleven. Like I was pretty young, and I think I matured like a little, like physically, a little bit faster mm-hmm. than um, my friends. Um, so I definitely noticed that, you know, when someone came over, I was told to cover up a bit more, or you know, like when I went out, like I would go to school, and uh, you know, like you just see people like staring, and you're like, what the hell? I'm in my school uniform. Um, Anyway, so I did start noticing it at a fairly young age. I was still in primary school, (laughs) Um, but anyway, yeah, so I just thought that was an interesting way because it shows that this uh, voluntary survey by the ABS doesn't encompass the experiences we've had before the age of 15. So I think it's pretty poor at painting the full picture of the prevalence of sexual assault and harassment in Australia. And also, but it got me thinking sort of like, what is a, a better way of painting the full picture? um about the prevalence and there really isn't one because you don't want to force people to mm. disclose these things but also like how are you going to know how common it is if if you don't know if you have no way of finding out yeah um but anyway so yeah so some of the other interesting statistics not interesting very sad statistics from abs was um the rate of police recorded sexual assault was seven times higher for like uh cishet females than it was for males so seven times as likely to happen to a woman than a man Mm. Um, and also half of the women did not seek advice or support after their most recent incident of sexual assault perpetrated by a male I mean yeah like we all face barriers in seeking support so that was pretty sad to hear about really that people don't feel comfortable seeking support after these things just kind of piggybacking off of that I
0: I did also look at some stats as well just to for myself in a way to get a clearer picture because I know that it's very common but I just I don't know sometimes getting a number to it really shows how common the problem is but yeah I found that at least in terms of workplace sexual harassment um, this was recorded in 2018 by um, the Australian Human Rights Commission but uh, from 2018 and the five years before that, 39% of women and 26% of men have experienced sexual harassment at work, and 40% of workplace sexual harassment incidents were witnessed by at least one other person. And in the majority of cases, so 69%, the witness did not intervene. So I think there's something to be also said about um when we see it, whether we want to intervene whether we want to escalate it you know is is it's not an issue that's relevant to us we know it's awful but yeah. and i think and i think i mean just linking to the me too movement of how that was such a problem within the hollywood kind of sphere of everyone loki knew about harvey weinstein and they would kind of warn upcoming actresses about oh yeah he's a bit creep oh did he take you into the room but it wasn't Nothing was done for so long to actually prevent that from taking place. It's it's all this kind of back talk about the problem, but never really addressing it. So, yeah, I found that a bit yeah. concerning that, like, it's not even just a matter of people not knowing that it's there. We see it. We recognize that it's happening. It's still not addressed fully. So it's just a lot of behind the scenes chatter about it, but not yeah. exactly addressing
1: it. And I think a lot of people are hesitant to not only report these issues when it happens to them, but also get involved when these sort of things happen. Because, you know, when when talking about, I feel like people view this topic as such a intimate private thing, right? Um, Where it's like, oh, it's between the people who are in that situation and no one really, everyone's really hands off about anything that's like sexual in nature. They're like, oh, I don't want to get involved, whether it's harassment or assault or whatever. Um, And... The intimate nature of it actually reminds me of another statistic which I saw, which is in 2017 to 2018, one in three hospitalized sexual assault cases or victims identified a spouse or a domestic partner as a perpetrator. One in three. So this is mm. the thing is this sexual assault and harassment. Another thing is it can literally happen anywhere. It can happen within the confines of your house. It can happen at work, as you just said, work work uh, workplace uh, harassment. It can happen in the streets. It can happen anywhere and it's sort of it's sad to think about like when we think about where are we safe where are women safe we're not safe at home we're not safe in the office we're not safe in parliament there's like yeah oh. but another thing which this got me thinking about is how hard it is to report sexual assault and harassment even even as a as a, a witness as well um it's hard for everyone of course but it reminded me of some of the other things we spoke about uh previously about being women of color um so talking about relationships and especially sex was hard for us even saying the word sex was hard for quite a while um yeah. you know we fate like there's so many cultural taboos about this thing um and it's not only in south asian culture it's in the dominant culture as well it's in every culture and there is some sort of like internalized shame in in just saying these words let alone having a discussion about it but for us specifically imagine something bad happened to you and you had to explain what happened in detail And to make matters worse, you know, it's not like you're explaining it to a friend, you're explaining it to a stranger, a policeman who's not from the same culture as you, or, for example, a lawyer, and then you have to go to court and be questioned about these intimate details in front of a judge. It's honestly horrific.
0: Yeah, I think it's definitely one huge drawback of um, the legal system, whereby victims' experiences are just drawn out consistently. Mm -hmm. We keep... um, We keep... asking for the same thing over and over and over again not really acknowledging the impact that that might have on the victim Mm -hmm. and how that might um elicit more trauma for the person it's it's really awful and it and it gets to the point where you're like it's such a waiting process as well between when the report is made and when justice is carried Mm -hmm. it's such a lengthy process that People just drop their charges. Yeah. You know, it's it's such a failing, and I it really really infuriates me that it's a, such a bureaucratic system that fails victims, and it's and yeah. it's just the consistent time waits that make people not get ju- the justice that they deserve.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I do want to talk a bit more about like the cultural aspect of it, but because you've brought up the legal side of it, I think people often view you know sexual assault cases and they're like oh but innocent till proven guilty it's a really well-known legal principle and they're right you know innocent before proven guilty is a legal principle and it should be there you know you can't you can't like the presumption of innocence should be there but at the same time I think we need to acknowledge the social and political context of these sorts of personal crimes um crimes against a person you know this isn't like A theft. Of course, thefts can be traumatic. And if you go to court and someone asks you to, like, repeat the same things, it it could be, it can be traumatic. But when, you know, when you're asking a woman, especially someone who's, you know, grown up in this environment... Also, not just a woman as well. Yeah, of course. Just, like,
0: anyone. Yeah, literally anyone who's experienced something like that. A child, a, a man, anyone, you know? Yeah.
1: And you ask them to, like, say the same things over and over in court. And the way the legal process works is for there to be... Some sort of justice. Obviously, the accused needs to have a defense, and that defense lawyer's job is to show that there is not enough. Um, they can't be proven beyond reasonable doubt. To they, their job is to introduce a sense of doubt into the mind of whatever the judge or the jury. So then, it then becomes sort of there's a there's a very fine line between victim blaming and you know proving the innocence of your client. So then it's like. Being questioned by, you know, the defense uh, defense lawyer and being asked these questions, knowing that, you know, it is their job to, to show that there is doubt that their client did it. But also they can be really invasive questions and it can feel very personally attacking when someone's like, oh, are you sure you're telling the truth? I don't think you're telling the truth. Like, what if this random event, like what if this random thing happened? And, you know, that's what explains your injuries and not whatever, you know?
0: And the assassination of someone's character mm-hmm. um, that happens through that, I just it made me think what you were just saying about all that about how they bring up the number of ex partners the woman has had mm-hmm. or the man has had or whatever. It's just like oh well, do you sleep around much? Maybe that's like how I don't know if you've been sleeping around. Are you sure? And that got me thinking. I I did some research just to get a understanding of why. Um, well, one, why uh, the people leading this movement kind of are all wealthy white women Mm. and why we don't necessarily see faces of other backgrounds. Mm. Um, And I think that came to this idea of promiscuity and the notions that we have attached to certain um, races and socioeconomic statuses regarding promiscuity. So um, I think there was a study that was done where they looked at how classism perceptions affected how one victim blamed uh, a a woman in a presented hypothetical scenario so basically they were given a situation of where a woman um, invited this man to her house and then he ended up uh, sexually assaulting her and they captured the participants you know level of classism and In each of those scenarios, either the condition was that the woman was uh, low socioeconomic status or a high socioeconomic status. So people who were more classist tended to victim blame women who were from lower socioeconomic backgrounds Mm -hmm. more so than they did women from higher socioeconomic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And that also comes down to because people think that people who are lower socioeconomic are more promiscuous. There's all those like media representations of the trailer living woman who has five kids and doesn't know who the baby daddy is and etc etc. And and then also that just then ties in to race as well. Because I think if you think about racial background and the level of promiscuity attached to our stereotypes about certain races, all oh, of this race, oh my god, they're so sexual and hypersexualized and things like that. Um, that can definitely play a role. So I think all of those factors then influence how we want to, how we feel compassion for a victim that comes forward. And it's weird that we have like the perfect victim image of mm-hmm. like a wealthy white woman. Yes. Because that's the story we listen to, you know? Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, tra- tying back to like the cultural uh, background sort of thing, mm. I-, I sort of think about things like, what if this happened to me or one of my friends, right? And I'm not saying it hasn't, um, but... From for mm-hmm. us, from the cultural backgrounds which we come from, a lot of us hide our relationships from our parents. Or if our parents know about our relationships, they certainly don't know about how intimate we get. And just knowing how prevalent this is uh, in a domestic setting, uh, and you know, most often, more, more often than not, the perpetrator is someone who is known to the victim. Um, so if something bad were to happen, we fear our parents finding out because a whole like web of lies lying about the relationship, lying about where you're going, you know who you're with, a whole web of lies would become undone. And then once your parents found out, would they actually support you or would they get mad that you hid it from them and say things like, "Oh, this is why I don't let you go out at night. This is why, you know, I don't let you do this if only you had told me then this wouldn't have happened." Um, not only do they not only do we fear victim blaming from Australian society and, you know, the dominant culture but also I think shame from the ethnic community as well. And if someone does manage to overcome all this and actually, you know, all these barriers and actually chooses to report to the police, what happens then? We've like, we have seen stats about this time and time again where police don't believe you. The majority of cases are dropped when they're with police. And then if they do, Um, go to court. Ethnic women are less likely to be taken seriously. They're less likely to be believed. Um, There's no media attention for ethnic women. Um, And as you said, there's a lot of character assassination of the victim in court. Often I've um, heard of things like, oh, a man's career is over, that's why you shouldn't, whatever, accuse him. But I feel like so often our lives revolve around men. Um, Does anyone stop to think about what happens to the victim? Like, as as you, I think, correct, like correctly said, rightfully said, mm. she faces or whatever, whoever the victim is, they face a character assassination if mm. they do choose to pursue, um, you know, reporting these crimes. It's it's really sad.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that's not to say, you know, like that isn't to diminish the impact of sub- like false accusations. You know, if those happen and a person loses a lot over that, mm. of course, I think that 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 is awful and. That needs to be a whole process involved with that. But I don't like it when that's always kind of used as the argument against or a woman sharing her story mm. or sharing her experience. Yeah. It's just like, oh, my God, like, you've just ruined his life. Yeah. And it's like, yes, but a lot of women's lives are ruined by sharing their own stories. They're not believed. They lose friends and family. They lose credibility yeah. because their whole past is just brought to the surface yeah. and just shown to everyone and they're like well back in 2014 i heard that you lied about this so mm-hmm. maybe you're just a liar yeah. and it's such a problematic process and, and and i think people really need to recognize that that is that is a valid um traumatic experience as yeah. well like just the process of going through um the legal yeah. A system and sharing your story is
1: is very scary. Yeah talking about false accusations though I did actually look at a statistic this is from the U.S. so not really relevant to Australians um but they found that out of all report again this is reported sexual assaults we there are obviously more than this um but out of Mm -hmm. all reported sexual assaults only two percent so two out of 100 were deemed to be false accusations and the reason why they were deemed to be false accusations is because so this is hard to explain but within the two percent seventy five percent of that two percent the victims i guess lied about the sexual assault because they were scared of saying what actually happened their partner had done something else were violent or were threatening violence or you know were doing something which scared the victim and the victim didn't know How else to make the person go away after, you know, apprehended violence orders, after going through all these avenues, they were like, I need to get you away, I'm gonna say you did this. So it was deemed to be a lie, or, you know, a false accusation, because what they said happened didn't happen, but that doesn't mean that other things didn't happen. So this whole narrative around false accusations is, it makes real victims lose credibility, and it's really insulting, I guess, to the the feminist movement and the Me Too movement as well, and victims.
0: Yeah. I've had conversations with male friends about this and it's a hard thing, right? Because, I mean, obviously, like I don't want someone to be falsely accused and put in jail for something they didn't do. There's been instances of that and that's awful, right? I reckon and I, I think that that's an issue and that needs to be addressed. But it's so hard when that's constantly the derailer of the conversations. Like, you don't necessarily really capture the empathic response to hearing a victim story because you're like a lot of women are false accusers too it's like why is that the only response like why can't we just Mm. sit and be like this is a reported sexual incident this is awful we need to address this how do we address this why is it constantly kind of derailed to talk about like but also false accusations are rampant like if that's a problem let's address it sure but Mm. we also need to continue to be addressing this issue Mm. of high cases of actual reported proven sexual assaults.
1: And that's really interesting because it also reminds me of um, when men say like, oh, this happens to men too, it's not only women. And they're right. As we said at the start, you know, this can happen to anyone. But the thing is, if you're only bringing up, you know, oh, this happens to men too and uh, false accusations are rampant. If you're only bringing up these topics when we're talking about sexual assaults, which women face, then you don't actually care about the other issue. You're just using it as a way to deflect the attention away from sexual assaults that happen to women. Mm. So yeah, that's quite frustrating. Um, But yeah, so I I feel like sexual assault and harassment has often been known as a very personal and intimate issue, but some events, some events, have actually caused nationwide and maybe even like global discussion. We talked about the Nirbia case just now. Um, So I thought it'd be worth talking uh, some more about the reasons why public conversation has recently turned to sexual assault and harassment. Did you want to share your experience when you heard about the 2012 Nirbhaya case? Yeah, I think I
0: was very much, yeah, as I said before, just disgusted and um disturbed by everything. I was, mm. personally, I was, like, scared to go to India because mm. I had only been, um I was 12 at the time, so I went again when I was 14. But around when I was 12, I was like, oh, my God, like, this is... And, I mean, it really also for me, made India seem like just a very bad place to be as a woman, you know? Sorry,
1: sorry, I I, I just think um, maybe before we talk about it, maybe we should give a little background of what the Nuremberg case was, mm-hmm. um, for those who may not know. I won't go into the details because I feel like we should save the details um, for people who want to, you know, Google this after, um, but there was a, a young woman um, who... After I think it was watching a movie with the male friend, she was going back home. It was early evening. She was traveling with the male friend. She was wearing a salwar kameez, which is a traditional Indian outfit, which covers you from like basically neck downwards. And she caught public transport. She got on a bus with her male friend heading home. And that's where the sexual assault took place. Um, it was a uh, gang rape of, I think, five men on her. Um, they, you know, hit and I think knocked out her male friend, um, and then proceeded to assault her. Um, and the assault was very, very gruesome, uh, the details we will not share. And then they ended up discarding her body, uh, naked and bleeding, into the street. And she was found the next morning, and it wasn't even like, you know, the first person who walked past reported it. She was there for hours while people walked by, until someone decided to report it to police, like, yeah, like mid-morning, the day after. So, anyway, that was the Nehropia case. Sorry, I'll, then I'll let you continue with um how you felt about the case.
0: Yeah, even just hearing it again, I'm, like, filled with, like, revulsion because it's so disturbing and it just, I don't know, it made me just really, really sad. And, like, I think because I also then heard about why the perpetuators were claiming that they did it and they just were like, well she shouldn't have been out this late like what was she expecting you know like Mm -hmm. this is this is what happens and it was just so dis like they had no level of like remorse or accountability or anything it was just Mm -hmm. it was just like well that's bad for her like she shouldn't have been Mm -hmm. out that late and i i it to me it was just unfathomable so i i learned i guess about this case and i was learning more and i was like oh my god this is so disgusting mm. um yeah how did you find it when you first heard about
1: it yeah um yeah it was really really disturbing and i remember thinking that would that could have been me and also, you know, I'm living this parallel life in Australia where I'm just a few years younger than her and I'm living a perfectly fine life. It kind of also made me feel a bit guilty. Cause I'm like, I'm I'm Indian, but I'm not affected by any of the things which Indian women are affected mm-hmm. by. Um but yeah, I I also, you know, as you said, I was disgusted. I was mortified. And I I was it was also during that time in high I think I was in high school where um I was deciding what I wanted to be when I grew up and law was, you know, really appealing to me. And the Nubia case was also one of the reasons why I sort of, well, it cemented my belief that I belong in the legal sphere because Mm. I watched a documentary, I can't remember what it was called, about, uh, and in that documentary, um, the, the accused's lawyer speaks about the case um and like the accused themselves he expresses no remorse he blatantly victim blames and i think you can't prevent sexual assault right like it is as we said before it is a it is the perpetrator's problem it is Mm. the only reason why these things happen is because of the perpetrator but at the same time because we've been surrounded by this like culture of victim blaming this particular case shows that there is nothing we could have... She, there is nothing she could have done to stop this. She did everything, quote-unquote, right. She was wearing decent clothing. She was... It wasn't dark when this happened. She was with... She was accompanied with a male friend. Like, there is nothing she could have done to avoid this. And this still happened to her. So, yeah, it was It was incredibly, I guess, traumatizing even just to hear about it. I can't imagine what, what it would, you know, be like... I mean, I don't want to imagine what it would be like for her. Um, She, unfortunately, did pass away. Um, but... Yeah, it was incredibly upsetting, and I think that was one of the moments where I felt most vulnerable as a woman. um And I think that was the moment where, I, where I sort of started paying more attention to the way I was treated as a woman, even in Australia. I was like, the way whatever friends talk about, and like, yeah, I, this is sort of going on a tangent, but I sort of feel like when I was younger, at least I can only speak from my own experience. I didn't really grow up in a very PC environment, <laughs> so. Um, rape culture was very prevalent, and I didn't notice it then. But after this case, I started noticing it because I noticed the rape jokes, which which boys mm. would make, and especially the boys who were into sport. They'd be like, "Oh yeah, we like rape, smash you. them, and like yeah, yeah we rape them, like stuff like that." It was, and like I only started noticing how terrible these words were and how terrible these quote unquote jokes were mm. after this case because it's like I, I can't, like something so terrible happened, and yet yet you use that word in such a flippant manner like someone who's been through this will obviously be i mean i didn't even go through that but i was traumatized yeah. when someone said that to me so anyway yeah that was it was really really confronting um but also talking about these cases i i can't help but get defensive when people talk about the nirbaya case and when they use it as um a way to say oh you know i don't want to go to india or, or indian men are gross or like whatever like Mm. I can't help but get defensive about it because it was a terrible terrible case and India has a massive problem with sexual assault um and the disrespect of women in general but yeah so does Australia so does literally every other country on the planet every country every culture has an issue with respecting women and Mm -hmm. sexual assault and yeah as we said this can literally happen anywhere anytime um so you know, using one. And also the thing is, I am glad that that case got global uh, okay. attention and there was global discussion about it because these things need to be discussed. Otherwise, we we can't break these barriers. We can't overcome, you know, all these, um, yeah, issues people have in, in uh, talking about it. So I was glad it got global discussion, but I really, really, I didn't like when people, you know, it, it's like, A friend watched Slumdog Millionaire and then came up to me and was like, oh, I'm so sorry that, you know, you came from that background. I'm like, I didn't come from that background. Like, Slumdog Millionaire is not representative of India. Same way, you know, you can't look at one case and judge a whole country, especially a country like India with so many cultures, languages, you know, differences. You can't judge a whole country by one particular example.
0: No. Yeah. And I think, I mean, to be completely honest, I think I had as well, like, when it came out and it was rampant, I was like, oh, my God, like, this is where I'm from. Like, I can't, it came from a place where this is so disgusting and disturbing. I was also 12, so I don't really think I had much constructive <laughs> critical thinking skills. But I was just like, oh, my God, I'm from that place. Um, mm. But obviously, you know, it, it's a rampant issue in a lot of lot of nations, and it needs to be addressed. But to kind of treat India as a nation that that's all that's known for or Mm -hmm. that you know like it's i i mean it is a problem in nations where um women's rights are not necessarily respected i mean i mean we have issues here but at least i mean i think the journey to equality has been a little bit better here in australia i suppose than some more developing nations but with that being said like you said it's it's a problem in a lot of places and to kind of generalize a whole country based on an incident and generalize the people and the population of that based on an incident is is problematic i think so Mm. um not all indians (laughs) sorry
1: just Yeah. (laughs) yeah yeah um, no, but I think like talking about, so that was obviously the case in India, but the instigator of the conversation in Australia, I think, are the recent accounts of women with relation to parliament, mm-hmm. So two incidences stick out for me, Brittany Higgins and Christian Porter. Yeah. So yeah, do you have any thoughts about uh, Brittany Higgins, let's start off with that whole case?
0: Yeah, I think I and the rest of Australia was shocked in the sense of like it happened in parliament you're like, Mm. okay, so the place where we're meant to be, you know, the epitome of democracy and where legislation is passed and et cetera, et cetera, uh, a place that you think is so noble, Mm. like things like this just happen and is disturbing. But at the same time, I was like, well, if it's happening in a lot of workplaces, the parliament shouldn't necessarily be excluded from that. You know what I mean? Mm, Like it's... It seems like it's rampant in in a lot of workplaces and in, in fields, in offices, in in the medical field everywhere. So I mean, in the same note, I was like, oh, I mean, shit. It was Parliament was also gonna be there, you know so yeah i heard about it and i was like oh and it's again i think you just feel because you're like that's a young woman that wanted to go into politics and Mm. i mean i remember having a conversation i think with my mom and she was like tell don't go into politics like no just (laughs) no like that's Mm. not i mean i i was already set away from that but i mean we're both quite passionate about activism and things like that and it's just I mean you see parliament one how they treat women Julia Gillard for example mm. it's just disgusting um mm. but then this incident you're like oh we're not safe really anywhere not even at the highest peak of Australia you know highest peak yeah. highest yeah. point of power i guess
1: yeah no i get it yeah and i think it's It's uh, really frustrating to think about when you think about, okay, so what do we need to do to change? Obviously, there's social change, but in terms of like physical change, which you can write down and, you know, sort of feel you need to make law. At least that's the way I feel. So I'm like, okay, change in the law will produce social change. How do you change the law? You become involved in politics. You go to parliament and you make the law. But then it's like, there are so many deterrents. And this is just another one. Like, as you said, you know, women are not treated well. I don't know if you heard, but after the Britney Higgins thing, there was um another politician i've just forgotten who it was but on they the found desk, out that like he masturbated yeah on the desk. yeah I was yeah like, a male politician foul. masturbated on a female politician's desk yeah it is foul it's disgusting I and that- the fact that this is like he did it as a joke like oh ha ha like excuse me i was like sorry what i was like how the heck are you in a position of power right now i was just like yeah. shocked oh Talking about Brittany Higgins, though, I did also read an article. Um, this is as of when we were recording this. Um, the uh, The guy who she accused is actually pleading not guilty. So mm-hmm. we'll see how that um, rolls out. But. Yeah.
0: And that's just, like, a problem. Like, I, I think I was also reading just about, like, the security guard and from their perspective mm-hmm. and and them seeing this and how that all played out. It was just, like... I don't know. I don't know uh, what is going to happen. Um, but obviously, mm. I think I I read something about just bringing it back to, I guess, through this lens of women of color. Like, in no way am I trying. I'm very grateful that Brittany Higgins had the courage to share her story on a large scale because that must yeah. be terrifying traumatizing all the backlash everything she was not even mm. believed or it was hidden and covered within parliament scott morrison i'm sorry i swear i felt like how did he just not know for so long when mm. literally everyone mm. around him kind of knew or i don't know if it was scott morrison but also just like the chief of staff that she was working under didn't mm. happen to
1: know i'm like Okay. Yeah. Apparently, sorry, just just going off that quickly. Apparently, when she did end up telling someone that this happened, they brought her into the office where the assault took place for her to talk about it.
0: Yeah, they're like, "How did this happen? Oh my!" But what yeah, what a joke. I was saying, I guess, with in relation to the women of color aspect, while I'm very grateful and I understand how difficult it must have been for Brittany Higgins, it's it is also a conversation of who is front lining this. This movement. Um, Mm. And there have been incidents where women of color, politicians who've experienced sexual harassment and assault, and I mean, they're not necessarily frontlining the conversation. And I Mm. read some um, quote, and it was talking about how the prime minister probably didn't find it too difficult to imagine imagine Brittany as his daughter, a young, ambitious, high achieving white woman working within the upper ranks of Australian society. That is quite likely a future that the Prime Minister imagines for his own children. But I do wonder how much harder it would have been for him to imagine empathy if Brittany was black. When we as a society determine the worth of injustice against a perceived or created level of available empathy, We ensure a system that gives justice based not on rules of law, but on our ability to see someone we love, to imagine that their suffering is somehow more real because we are readily able to put ourselves in their shoes. It enables us to ignore injustice against the other. And that quote was by Mariki Onis. And I just read that and I was like, that is one very profound and so true that, I mean, this is the psychology person in me, but like, who's in our in-group who who do we feel Mm. represented by those are the people that Mm. we can feel empathy for and our empathy is so limited to that when this is a problem that's worldwide experienced by women of all different races and backgrounds and things like that and who are we seeing headlining this conversation it's not us and it makes it seem that maybe this isn't an us issue or this is not an issue that we can talk about publicly because Mm. Where are they? Where are those people? Yeah. It, it also makes it seem like, yeah, women of colour don't experience sexual assault, assault or harassment, oh, no. which is just not the case. Yeah. yeah. Well yeah. What are your thoughts, Divya?
1: No, I, I definitely agree. A piggybacking off what you said, Brittany Higgins, of course, you know, commend her for her bravery. Also, this brings me to Grace Tame, who um who is another amazing, fabulous white woman who came forward with her sexual assault story and has paved a path for other women um, and is really, you know, a, a pioneer of changing things for women and making making society better for women. But it just makes me think Brittany Higgins was a white woman. Grace Tame is a white woman. Both of them were fairly well off and Brittany Higgins was working in parliament. As you said, that's like the highest uh, political place to work in. So it's like they're amazing women, but also it's like, it's not like there haven't been women of color. It's not like there haven't been indigenous women speaking out about these issues for decades for like forever the thing is there have always been women of color and um you know BIPOC generally speaking up about these issues but do they get the media attention no do they ever you know has this ever been brought do we ever relate to them do we like we don't even get to hear about them but even Mm. if we do hear about them in the off instance like Do we relate to them? Do we empathize with them? Do we sympathize with them? Or do we go back to victim blaming? Like, Mm. oh, they're from that culture. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, they're from that community. And like, you know, they have a drinking problem, whatever. It just happens there. That's what they do. You use your misperceptions of what their
0: cultural values are. They're like, oh, they're archaic. You know, the men Mm. in that place are, you know, they're a different type of people. And that's just what happens. And we're dismissive of it because we don't think it's an Australian issue. It's not a, I don't feel represented by that person, or I don't feel like they share any similarity with me, so why should I care? And it's such a 100%. problematic way of thinking. It's like, why do we always have to look like a person to feel for them, you know?
1: Yeah. And another uh, thought which I had with this, like, Britney Higgins situation was... um. We're paying a lot of attention to it because it is in parliament, right? But we know this issue is happening in our universities, our workplaces, Mm -hmm. our homes, literally everywhere. So we are shocked because it is happening in parliament, but we're not shocked that it is happening. So is Mm. sexual harassment and assault just a reality which we resoundingly accept? Like, is that what we've come to? i mean unfortunately yeah
0: that i mean that was like a lot of i think the responses for a lot of women to hearing about this and i don't think men even knew about it i don't think some Mm. i talked to some men and they were like what what happened with Brittany higgins who who's that and it's like the Mm. women are very well aware and and tuned into this um about Mm. the problem of assault happening in the parliament but Mm-hmm. Why is it? Why is it only our issue? You know, I mean, and yeah. again, I know, I know a lot of people um, can be victims of sexual assault, but I mean, looking at like the statistics and what we've just spoken about, and and who we're seeing in the media about women being the victims, it's like, well why are only women listening to that? It's like, it's just this kind of cycle of the people that are affected are listening and are affected are listening and they can't necessarily change the system because it's the perpetuator's fault, you know?
1: Yeah, and I think um, uh, it's interesting that the 2012 Nirbhaya case in Delhi, India, uh, is used to tar a whole, you know, country and mm-hmm. our men and our culture. But the high profile instances of sexual assault and harassment in Australia, they're treated as isolated cases. They're like, oh it happens there. Oh, you know, oh it ha- one case happened in part. Like
0: Yeah, we're not like sorry, we're not like saying all politicians are creeps, are we? Are you know?
1: Oh, it's not all Australian men. Like, oh no, Aussie men are fine. Like, anyway, yeah, we never use it to blame or Mm. to take, not even blame, we don't use it to take ownership and take responsibility. Mm. They're treated as isolated incidences. Um, But another uh, political case, Christian Porter. Mm. Now, again, as of recording this, um, there has been no criminal trial for Christian Mm -hmm. Porter. And that is because they say they don't have enough um, uh, evidence to support a trial. That's, you know... Whatever it happens, um, mm. but what he has done is the ABC reported on this mm-hmm. claimed sexual assault, and he sued the ABC for defamation. Yeah, and he to sue to cover his legal fees, he accepted an anonymous donation of a million dollars or something. And when that was brought to light, he then resigned from his uh, his role. Now people are being like, oh my god, he was character assassinated and like blah blah. the The issue here is like he didn't resign from his role because of committing sexual assault. Mm. He resigned from his role because of of accepting an anonymous million mm. dollars. Yeah. So it's in, in, in my mind, it was sort of like, are we really valuing money more than women? <laughs> like, do we treat money as a, a more important issue than a possible, an accused sexual assault? Yeah. I've had
0: conversations about that. Like, well, shouldn't accusation taint someone's career forever? Like, until, we, you know, the whole... And i've heard i mean i i don't agree with when people say oh guilty until proven innocent for sexual assault cases i still think that that's you know i think conflating that with uh, believing the victim there's sometimes a little bit of an issue i think that we need to be empathetic and respectful to victims always always but i don't think we should be like guilty until proven innocent um but i think there's an issue of like, oh, like, OK, should he have lost his job over this accusation? And then all oh, men are men are at risk constantly because anytime a woman can just come with an accusation and the man is just destroyed and can't get a job forever. And and that I mean, I don't know, I'm not I'm not too well versed in, in the implications of of an accusation Uh, i do think you can still get a job and things like that and pursue what you want Um, obviously there's social implications maybe if the people around you care about such issues Um, but yeah i guess you're right in the concern that christian porters resigned not because of the accusation that it wasn't that wasn't the issue that pushed him to leaving his role you know it's it's Mm -hmm. the conflict of interest the anonymous donations like yeah and you're right like it brings up the question of is it money that that's that's something that we should be i
1: don't know yeah that's more important or pressing yeah and also talking about you know the implications of a false accusation on men we have seen time and time again how men get away with these things even when it's Proven in court that they are guilty. Mm. Um, The case which my mind automatically turns to is Brock Turner. I don't know if you heard about him, but um, this was back in, I think, 2015, but it only went to court in 2018, 2019. Otherwise known as, like, the Stanford sexual assault case. But Brock Turner was a student in university who sexually assaulted another student, um, and he was found guilty, but... And also he expressed no remorse. His dad, uh, his dad's statement in court was like, oh, I feel so sorry for my son. He can't eat his chicken dinner anymore. That was a dad's statement. Um, Fuck chicken dinner, what the hell? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then the judge's um, judgment or verdict um, was sort of like, oh, look, he's still got a whole life ahead of him. He's a swimming champion, an athlete. We can't ruin his career because of one mistake. Mm. And that's the way it was framed that Brock Turner made a mistake. And no one talked about, or, you know, uh, the, 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 I guess we should actually say survivor. So the survivor mm. came forward with this and, Um, you know, she shared her story and, uh, you know, she garnered a lot of support from mainly women, um, but a lot of support online. Um, but in court, whether this affected her, how it affected her career, how this affects her future prospects, none of that was considered. Mm. And none of that was taken into consideration when sentencing Brock Turner. It was all about, oh, he's one very young, capable man who just made a mistake, um, so Brock Turner has, you know, been let off the hook. Also, there was a very recent case in Australia where it's not actually a sexual assault case, but a twenty-year-old man punched a woman in the face, um, and <gasps> when she was on the ground, stomped. Yeah. Yeah, stomped on her phone to whatever shove it, like prove a point. Um, he was taken to court for assault, and he got off scot free. Like, yeah, like yeah,
0: yeah. It was just like, don't do it again. You know? And I think he actually had a history of something, like, violently acting out when he was drunk or something, and I was just like, oh, but... Like, he had a whole future, and he went to a good private school in Sydney, and maybe in Sydney, in that private school, like, he's not used to women dressing in such way, like, that's just not respectful, so that's why he said something against that woman, which made her upset, which made him punch her, which, like, what? Like... Uh, why are we yeah why are we first even justifying why he's slut shaming a woman for what she wears and because oh mm. my like you know the environment he was raised in like he just he's not exposed to such yeah. things like shut up stupid mm. and i think yeah. what also just made me think about um kind of people going free in a way is bill cosby mm. that kind of came up uh recently i guess in the past few months of just that instance whereby he is his charges were dropped um because of an apparent promise made uh i guess i think in 2005 so i mean maybe uh, does i can give a brief rundown of what what has happened yeah. just for listeners so basically bill cosby was accused um by a lady uh, by a lot of women, but um, I guess one of the charges or accusations that were being pursued was by Miss Consted. So in 2005, um, this district attorney, uh, Mr. Castor, um, had a press release saying that he would not charge um, Bill Cosby um, over the matter of the accused sexual assault. And so Mr. Cosby had sat for depositions and gave a settlement payment of $3.38 million to Miss Consid, the victim. And then a subsequent district attorney then kind of went against that promise of we're not going to charge you over this. So they used the information that Bill Cosby had said in those depositions, in which he revealed that he um had given sedative pills to a lot of women in efforts to have sex with them so they used that information i guess in the present i guess charge that was being processed against him um as evidence against bill cosby so apparently because cosby was promised that, that such information would not be used against him and then was he could no longer um mm-hmm. be charged for the crime even though he literally confessed basically um and 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 it can never be i guess really pursued so when i read about this and i have no legal background and diva you was talking about how you kind of hearing about the delhi incident you Mm. really started pursuing law and you've you know accomplished um a lot with it (laughs) you've done a whole law degree so I, i guess i'm curious about like your takeaways of like what that means I've spoken to some law friends and they've been like, oh, yeah, like, I mean, you can't you can't do anything about that. Like, Mm. but then it makes me think, like, is the legal system failing victims of sexual? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Broken. Um, And is it about really the truth? Even if someone confessed to something, it doesn't really matter because we promised them not to. Like, it just made Mm. me a bit, I guess, question the reliability of. The legal system in protecting yeah. victims,
1: and you know what, you are you are a hundred percent right in um in, uh, casting some doubt over the legal system's ability to give justice to victims of sexual assault, um because, the truth does not always equal justice. You know, um as sad as that is, if you find out the truth, um via means which are not legally accepted, if if it's not legally as you would say legally admissible evidence, um you can't use it in court so even if you know the truth that doesn't always uh, amount to justice um and so i think the thing with bill cosby is he he got let out on a legal technicality um and that technicality was an issue of confidentiality what he said was said um presuming that you know it was said in confidence and it wouldn't be used against him um so then the issue was using what he thought wouldn't be used against him against him was then obviously unfair to him. Um, the issue with that is, okay, that that is unfair to him, but what about the 50 to 60 claims of sexual assault he has against him? What about those 50 to 60 women who have come forward to say that, you know, he has done this? They don't see justice because we're trying to be fair to him. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things which, you know with sexual assault, it's one of those things where people always end up talking about the law and they always, you know, as we've said, you know, innocent until proven guilty or like whatever, they always try and use like, oh, he, but he, he hasn't been proven guilty yet. You you can't slander him. The thing I think to keep in mind, which is important, um, which we were taught in law school, was that the law is not always right. It is not always morally correct. Um, we've seen in the past um, where, you know, certain things are legal um, to give an example, and this is a terrible example, and I hate that this exists, but um, marital rape is still legal in India. Mm-hmm. So the fact that, you know, it is literally enshrined in the law that you can do this, it's legal, doesn't mean that it's right. Mm. It is still wrong to do those things and we should know it. So I think it's important to take into consideration the social and political context of these crimes, of these sexual assaults. And yeah, I mean, I mean, I honestly i am on the same page as you. I don't think the legal system... Is yet advanced enough to sort of deal with sexual assaults or harassment matters in a way that's that's sympathetic to the victim, to the victim or the survivor, and it's not built in a way that provides justice mm. to them. It's it's more provided. Uh, well, in these cases, it's provided as a protection for the accused, and it it's almost set up to save them from false accusations, as opposed to actually help. Um, uh, you know, deliver justice. And the tricky thing with sexual assault as well is we're talking about these cases which have, you know, come to light and, like, there are witnesses or whatever accounts besides the victim and the perpetrator. But a lot of, like, the majority of sexual assaults happen where there's only those two people in a mm-hmm. room. There's no witnesses. And then it becomes a case she of said, he said, she said versus said. she said. Yeah. yeah. And the, the difficulty in this, and, you know, this is evidenced by the Christian Porter case, is what if the victim's not there anymore? Mm-hmm. Like... You know, in the Christian Porter case, um, the the person who's accused him of committing the crime has unfortunately committed suicide. Mm. So she's not there to tell a story. And that's why we don't have enough evidence. All the evidence is circumstantial. Mm-hmm. So that's why we can't pin him down on an allegation. Uh, sorry, we can't pin him down on whatever. You know, it's that's an allegation. Yeah. It's not proven guilty. Yeah. So, yeah, when it becomes he said, he said, she said... Knowing that, you know, this is the situation in which the majority of these cases take place, it's important to believe the victim. It's important to be supportive of them and create that environment where, you know, women are not treated like this mm-hmm. and where they can come forward with confidence and know that they will get justice. And that's just, unfortunately, not not the place we're at at the moment. Yeah. Um, the legal system still has, you know, ages to go until it gets there. I don't even know how it'll get there, honestly, but mm. it is something we need to work on. Um, but that also reminds me of something else. So with Christian Porter... He did, he's referred to what he calls has been a trial by media. Mm. Um, and he's like, it's unfair that I've gone through this trial by media. He's been slandered by the media and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, again, that sort of... <laughs> I had this conversation with um, a friend um, and uh, I've seen some consenting messages on social media. As part of a longer discussion, and I apologize for the triggering language, but a man said, quote, unquote, I don't want to call a dead girl a liar, but... And my reaction to that was, if you don't want to call a dead girl a liar, then don't. Mm. Believe her. Mm. Like, no one's forcing you to defend him. Mm. And, like, it's just sort of like we've, uh, like, this whole, like, think about the culture which we're creating. By doubting this woman who is... Who has passed away what message are we sending to other women who've been through similar experiences you're saying you won't be believed do you have irrefutable evidence that he did this besides your own word Mm. if the answer is no well then no one's going to believe you yeah and that's the message we're sending out but that's not the message we should be sending out we need to change the whole culture and the way we talk about sexual assault and harassment to make it more welcome not more welcoming more acceptable to talk about these things and to give confidence to survivors that they will be believed. And if they don't get justice via the legal system, at least you'll have social support. You know, you'll get through this. You'll be okay. Mm. Yeah. I know,
0: I get that totally. And it is a hard, you know, thing. Like, I've had obviously conversations where it's like, I don't want to. Make someone out to be a person that i I don't know. Like obviously, obviously, when it's a two person incident, I wasn't there. I'm not sure. But I think what we can have control of is whether the language we use is victim blaming, whether the language we use is dismissive about the incident. I'm not a judge, I'm not a lawyer, I can't tell you whether it happened or not, but obviously if my friend shares an experience, I'm going to believe them, because I believe my friend. But at the same time, mm. I just think, you know, if you're, if you're a person who's like, okay, uh, I'm worried about accidentally falsely accusing someone, okay, if that's that's your concern, if you don't want to mischaracterize someone as a rapist, I get that, right? Mm. But mm. don't be an asshole to the person who is yeah. alleging the crime you know what i mean don't mm. dismiss their instance don't try and assassinate their character um don't be like well what did they did to to prompt this if you want to be neutral be neutral okay whatever no one's asking for your opinion anyway but sh- mm. you know it isn't always this or that you know what i mean like we need to be empathetic to people who are sharing something that is very vulnerable. It's just, I think, basic human respect and decency. If someone's saying that something happened to you, I I think our go-to is to, you know, be inclined to believe them. And if you're worried about mischaracterizing someone, then find a way in the middle. Find a way where you mm-hmm. can still be an empathetic, kind human being who isn't invalidating the trauma of someone. Um, whilst also being someone that isn't then like until you find out further information then you can whatever make your judgment but I know that that's a problem that people uh, at least in conversations that I've had people have been like oh well I mean this whole believe all victims stuff it's like Mm -hmm. anyone can then become one and I'm like okay well find a find a place where you can then for yourself can be a respectful human being and empathetic and not in any way discourage real victims from coming
1: forward you know what I mean I think what you've said is really really great it's important to be kind empathetic and to be an active listener and listen to people who who you know are telling you this with confidence um I think what you've said and also there is no reason to play the devil's advocate you do not need to be play the devil's advocate Mm. Anyway, this has been a really, really difficult conversation, but I think it was really, really necessary to have. So yeah, for our listeners, we do want to remind you to take care of yourself and reach out if you require support. If you are in Australia and have been through some traumatic experiences or are affected by these conversations and wish to speak to someone or seek help, please contact 1-800-RESPECT or organizations like Brave Hearts, who specialize in providing support to those affected by sexual assault and harassment. So yeah, thank you so much for tuning in for this episode. Um, please do take the time to unwind and engage in some self-care after listening to this episode. Should you wish to engage with this this discussion further or share your own experiences, please do reach out to us um, on Instagram at TrueBrownGirlsAU. Take care, our TBG family, and we will see you same time next week for the next episode. Thank you. See you.